Hi, everyone. Tom Rogers here, Director of Teachers Talk Radio. Thanks very much for tuning in and listening to this show. This show is sponsored and supported by Witherslack Group, Collins Big Cat, and by Renaissance. We can't be more excited to be sponsored by these fantastic companies. Please check them out on their websites, which are available through our website at ttradio.org. Live from Wales, this is The Twilight Show with Kate Jones. Good evening and I hope you're well. Tonight I will be talking about formative assessment. I'll be revisiting formative assessment because we've spoken about this before with Dylan William and Professor John Hattie. But tonight I will be joined by Shirley Clark. Let's talk about everything formative assessment live from wales this is the twilight show with kate jones on teachers talk radio tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation download the podbean app and search teachers talk radio follow the hashtag tt radio tune in talk it out with teachers talk radio Good evening. Oh, and I absolutely love that from Graham. Live from Wales. Yes, that's right. I'm here in North Wales. Now, Shirley Clark will be joining me later in the show. And as I've mentioned, formative assessment is something that I've spoken about before. Um, I wrote a book about it recently, and Dylan William helped me write that book as part of the Inaction series. And that was a really popular episode. Now, if you missed that episode with Dylan William, you can listen back as you can with all of our shows. Um, Another guest that I had previously was Professor John Hattie, and that was a really great conversation. He was live from Melbourne, Australia. His phone battery died, and then he charged it up and rejoined the conversation. And I talked to him about formative assessment. And someone that John Hattie has worked with is Shirley Clark. They've collaborated together um, on many things. They've co-authored a book together. And Shirley Clark is really well known for her work with formative assessment. So if you've got any questions about formative assessment, about learning intention, success criteria, feedback, there's so many different elements, then please do, if you're listening live, write them in the Podbean chat, or of course you can send them to me on Twitter. Um, I'm at Jones underscore teach, or you can follow the Teachers Talk radio twitter account which you should be because that's the place to go to stay updated with all of our shows and that's at tt radio 2022 okay then but before i go on to formative assessment just want to have a little catch up Um, i didn't have my show last week i was away i rented a cottage in Snowdonia and there was power cuts uh, (laughs) with the storms and everything and obviously I survived to tell the tale we all did but um, yeah that was great it was a week in a cottage to go away and do lots of writing and one of the other things that I did was a lot of CPD and 
it's actually really interesting thinking about CPD for two perspectives. As somebody who attends a lot of CPD, I read a lot of books, um, I read a lot of blogs, and I, I watch webinars, but I also deliver those things. So I write blogs, I author books, I deliver CPD. Um, and it, as I said, it's really interesting to think about it. So I personally, I really enjoy the fact that CPD is online and that I can deliver a webinar via Zoom. It takes out um, an element of travel. Um, it's less time. It's very convenient, but there are definitely downsides to it. So when you're presenting to a live audience, it's great to see people there. You can see their reactions when they're smiling and they're nodding. You just don't get that on Zoom. It's, it's, it's not possible. Although having said that, um, in recent years at events, it's become quite trendy to, and I do this as well, to tweet um, throughout the event or to, to post online what's happening. Um, and as someone who can't always attend events, I really like seeing the hashtag and following all the tweets. But actually when I'm presenting and I'm looking out at an audience who are all on their phones, it's really difficult. I mean, we would never have that in the classroom, would we? And I went to a session recently uh, and I said to them, look, you're going to have a copy of my slides. Um, so you don't need to take photos of the slides because if anything, if you're like me, I take a photo of a slide. I don't really go back to my camera roll and look at it. Um, I said, so you don't need to take photos of the slides and actually try and stay off your phones and listen and ask me questions. And people were really shocked by that. And they thought that I was being a little bit strict and maybe a bit like a diva. And I wasn't. I was just thinking of, well, I talk about memory and working memory and cognitive overload. So I'm very mindful of being on your phone and trying to listen uh, what's going on. And it just it's that split attention effect. And it's really difficult. Um, so. Yeah, as someone who delivers CPD, I'm seeing the pros and cons um, with it, with Zoom, with online versus in person. And I know Tom Rogers, our director of Teachers Talk Radio, um, he also is the founder of Teach Me Icons. And at the weekend, uh, Teach Me Science Icons happened. And there was lots of photos, people seeing each other, networking, chatting. And that's fantastic because... I was in another um, Zoom webinar recently, and um, I uh, in the well in the beginning we all had to sort of introduce ourselves in the chat box, and it just it just didn't really work. Um, it wasn't the same as if you would talk to someone at an event, um, and it was just it was a little bit frustrating, really. Um, actually, it took up a huge amount of time, more than I perhaps would have liked, and I think. That for me, when I'm delivering CPD or attending any CPD sessions, you know, it's it's so important to get it right. Um, if there's money involved, then of course, you know, people want to feel like they've got good value for money. But even if it's free, like I said, there's this obligation to have high quality CPD because people are giving up their time. 
So, yeah, there's a lot to think about with CPD. I've had some good and bad experiences uh, recently. And, of course, as well, when you do it online, you might have a technical issue. But I've also presented in person and my PowerPoints let me down. And actually, that happened to me years ago when I was very first sort of starting out presenting. And I just couldn't present without my PowerPoint. I should have just talked but it, I just needed it. So I just stood there frozen waiting for the IT um, support to fix it. So yes, live events are happening now. Um, might mean a bit of travel, a little bit more time and might not be everyone's thing after online CPD. But then other people are clearly loving it. The chance to meet people in person people that perhaps they know from Twitter or that they've admired, you know, read their work. Um, and that is really, really special. I've got lots of in-person work um, coming up in schools um, around the world and I'm very privileged to be able to do that. And that's actually something that Shirley Clark does um, a lot. She works with a lot of schools across the UK and internationally. So whether you're familiar with formative assessment or not, hopefully all teachers will have lots of things that they can take away from this conversation today. And as I said, please do send in the questions. I've got lots of questions for Shirley Clark because I wrote a book about formative assessment myself. And Shirley Clark was someone that I kept referencing and I revisited her work and I quoted her work. Um, but even so, there was still things about formative assessment that I think can be quite difficult to implement in the classroom. Um, one of the things when I did interview Dylan William on Teachers Talk Radio um, that led to him and I collaborating on an article, which I will tweet out, um, we wrote an article together about getting Think, Pair, Share right. And think per share is something that schools have been doing for years and years. Definitely nothing new. But Dylan Williams said during his conversation with me that teachers often skimp on the think. And so many teachers are just like, whoa, he's right. We just go, right, think per share, turn to your partner and talk. And they do skip that individual think time and then we're missing a retrieval opportunity and we're not really going through with the think pair share elements um distinctly so that was just a great example of how through conversations and reflections you can take a tried and tested classroom strategy and just make it even better and it's the same with mini whiteboards I have been to quite a few schools recently just observing lessons um wonderful and when I'm observing I am there to learn and soak up everything absolutely not judgmental I'm not giving any grades I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that I don't agree with that but they have said to me you know have you got any pointers have you got any feedback and there was one specific class I was watching and they were using the mini whiteboards quite a lot in the lesson, which is great. You could use it for checking for understanding or retrieval practice. But one thing that I noticed was that a lot, well, there was a few members of the class who would wait until another pupil had put their mini whiteboard up in the air. So it's quite clear that the pupil they were looking at 
she always must get it right. She they must see her as a you know really clever. And then when she put her answer on her board in the air, they just copied. And I said to the teacher, you've absolutely got to wait and make sure students put their mini whiteboards up at the same time because they were just scattered. Some people were just putting their whiteboard up in the air or some were still writing. Others were then looking and then changing their answer. It just wasn't as effective as it could be. So one, two, three, show me. There we go. And Adam Boxer's tweeted about mini whiteboards. So uh, Adam Boxer's been on Teachers Talk Radio before. He's a science teacher. He's brilliant. He does loads of retrieval practice, carousel learn. And someone then said, why are you all acting like mini whiteboards are new? You know, they've been around ages. Yes, but Adam is giving advice to teachers about how to use them effectively. Or some teachers say, oh, I don't like mini whiteboards students draw silly things they write silly things they they lose the pens they don't erase it there's all these problems and actually there are solutions and ways to either prevent these things or overcome them and it really does help when we talk about it and actually what's at the heart of that and that is reflection being a reflective practitioner and for me when I was sat in the primary school it's quite easy for me to sit and observe these things and spot the student that's copying someone else where it's really difficult for a teacher to do that whether they're trying to manage over 25 students and walking around they're busy they're not going to pick up on everything so it does help to have someone come in a fresh set of eyes just literally there to help and um, developmental not judgmental and it's a shame because I always used to get very nervous with lesson observations and I used to make them more complicated than they needed to be I used to you know see it as a bit of a fancy lesson you know let's really go for it let's do all singing and dancing and I never really used it for what it should have been as something to just help me reflect and improve on my practice. So we could talk to Shirley Clark about this because I know um, that she's been in lots of classrooms, she's worked with lots of teachers. So there, I've just talked about CPD, online versus in-person. Do you have a preference? Write it in the comments or let me know on Twitter. Um, As I said, pros and cons to each, and it depends whether you're delivering it, whether you're attending it. Maybe you like both. Maybe you like the flexibility and maybe just because in-person events are happening again doesn't mean online events will stop. Um, I was chatting to a school internationally, actually, and they said they had loved all the online CPD because they always sort of felt a bit out the loop. And I was like that when I was in Abu Dhabi. Um, And now it just helps me feel a lot more connected. Okay, then. Well, (laughs) that's just me rambling on. Um, But I hope there's a few things there for you to think about. I'm going to head... Oh, oh, there's a bit of an echo there. I'm going to head over to our adverts now. And then after that, we will be joined by Shirley Clark. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. 
They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls' School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N.co.uk. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, You'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In Scotland, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon is facing demands to drop her £300,000 scheme to cut the bottom off doors, aimed at improving ventilation to combat COVID-19. Asbestos experts have warned that the plan could expose pupils and teachers to deadly dust. A 2019 report revealed that about 1,600 Scottish schools still have asbestos fixtures and fittings, including fire doors. Asbestos was banned in 1999. Director of Action on Asbestos, Phyllis Craig, said, Asbestos can be found within doors and in different areas in schools, and I would sincerely hope that this is taken into consideration before any work is carried out. Schools are required to have had a survey to identify the presence of any asbestos, hold a register of the whereabouts of any asbestos, and have a plan to manage asbestos. My question is, does the Scottish Government know if schools meet these requirements before any work is carried out? If not, I'd be concerned asbestos may be disturbed during the process of cutting the doors. Asbestos exposure can have health consequences decades after exposure, and this needs to be recognised 
and treated with the seriousness that it merits. After safety concerns were raised, Education Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville appeared to back away from plans, but they have not officially been dropped. A Scottish Government spokesman appeared to pass responsibility on to the local authorities, saying, There is no such plan. It is for local authorities to decide what measures they take to improve ventilation in schools. In Northern Ireland, legal action has forced education chiefs into a U-turn and a return to rules which were in place last autumn, which allowed any teacher who qualified in the South to immediately register with the General Teaching Council for Northern Ireland. Kirsty McGrath, who graduated in Dublin last summer, took action after rules were changed and Michelle McElveen, class teachers from the Republic of Ireland, as rest of the world, resulting in a lengthy wait. Miss McGrath, through her solicitors, wrote to the Department of Education, outlining their intention to seek a judicial review and as a result was added to the Northern Ireland Teacher Register last week. Patrick Higgins, solicitor, welcomed the decision, saying, the failure of the Department of Education to process Ms McGrath's application is unlawful and unreasonable. With a teacher shortage in Northern Ireland, this continued delay is impacting pupils, schools and teachers. Although it was named in legal papers, the Department of Education has denied it or Minister McElveen has any role on determining who can be a teacher in Northern Ireland. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm addressing a problem quite a few teachers have, the dreaded lock screen in the middle of a lesson. We've all experienced it when you're displaying something and the computer decides you're inactive and goes to sleep. I notice this most if you're using digital link instead of a whiteboard. Well, I may have a way to stop this happening to you. However, it will depend on your school's network settings. You might not be allowed to change the options I'm about to discuss. A quick workaround for this is to see if your display has a freeze button. This will hold whatever's being shown until you unfreeze. Lock screen happens because your computer is trying to save power and also to keep you safe by locking after a specified time of inactivity. If you're going AFK and leaving your computer unattended, press Windows and L. This will lock your machine. Even if this next tip isn't working for you, this will. Never leave your computer unattended and logged in. Windows and L is a good habit to start. Now you can lock your machine at will, you're ready to change the settings to keep it on. We need to go to the display settings. A quick way is to right click on the desktop and select it from the menu. Now select power and sleep. As you're probably always plugged in when teaching, set the two drop down menus under the heading screen and sleep to never when plugged in. Now your screen won't switch off and the machine won't go to sleep to save power when you're plugged in. Remember you will need to manually lock the computer if walking away. For this week's visual version don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 
2 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was 2 Minute Tech. 2 Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you to Steve Woods. And hello, Shirley Clark. You are Hi, here. Hi, Kate. Um, how's the audio? Do I, is that okay? Have I got Perfect. <laughs> yes, I can hear you. And this is a bit scary doing it live radio, <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's all good. So, yeah, I'm so pleased um, to be talking to you tonight about formative assessment because I think you're the queen of formative assessment. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> if that's fair. And I always um, start off with a fun fact about my guests. And um, I thought I'd share this with you, actually. Um, I was writing about formative assessment and Dylan William was was editing it for me, which was amazing. Yeah. And I um, referenced him and he came back. Oh, no, no, no. That's Shirley Clark, not me. You must <laughs> reference her correctly. He said, I got that from Shirley Clark. So I, he did write about it, but he was referring to your work. So then I did that as well. So you, you've you come up uh, in conversation quite a few times when I spoke to Dylan William and when uh-huh. John John Hattie was a guest as well. He he said lovely things about you. Uh-huh. I know. So I'm going to ask about that, <laughs> about your collaboration. Sorry, making you blush, saying how, <laughs> how, how much of a fan we all are. Oh, thank you. Um, but before we get um, into formative assessment, which is what you're really well known for, um, I just wanted to ask, I know a little bit about that you were a primary school teacher. Right. I, don't, I don't know how many books you've written. I tried to count, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it's too many. So if you could just give us a, a little bit of an introduction, an overview of your career, that would be fantastic. Okay. Um, gosh, it's uh i'm i'm sort of getting on a bit now i'm still very enthusiastic but um i'm going to try and make it as quick as possible um so i I was a primary teacher i started teaching in 1975 i know it's a long time ago in tower hamlets um and i moved to what was then division six the ilea greenwich to abbey wood um, a school with 20% travellers, children, um, quite a challenging school. I stayed there for seven years and did music and maths. Um, and then 1982, I became an ILEA primary maths co- co- consultant, uh, going into different schools and helping them with their teaching of mathematics. I was all very exciting. And then I got seconded to the... CATS, Key Stage One Development Agency in London, to be to head the team that was writing the very first Key Stage One SATs in, um, and, you know, that were going to be happening in 1992, I think it was. And we, there were three agencies set up, CATS, STAIR and NFER. Um, and it, it was two years for the most amazing, incredible, ridiculous time. We were given all the statements of attainment and attainment targets at the time that the national curriculum had just come out with and we had to create tests for them. So, of course, we had like weeks and weeks of tests and activities for children. It was all crazy. Um, and as a result of that, um, I we didn't get the contract in the end, thank goodness. I'm glad it went to NFER. Uh, and we were told our tests were too teacher-friendly. Um, and uh, I became a lecturer at the Institute of Education, which was where um, we'd been working on that. 
Um, and the head of the inset department at the time was Barbara McIlchrist, who was the head of the ILEA. And she remembered me and my classroom and goodness knows what else. And I had 10 years at the Institute of Education um, and did masses of training in that time. As a result of running courses at the Institute and asking teachers to go off and experiment with things, I realized by about 1998 that I had a fantastic amount of material um, and it was a, an exciting time because teachers were coming to grips, getting to grips with the, the assessment part of the national curriculum. Um, and also uh, the Deering inquiry that all the young teachers don't, won't know what I'm talking about, which was a result of uh, a massive walkout by teachers because at that point, teachers were trying to tick off 450 statements of attainment for every child every day uh, for all the subjects. And the manageability thing was, was mad. And so uh, there was a huge walkout and the Deering inquiry was set up. And he said, we should only be tracking significant achievement. And I grabbed hold of these words and asked my teachers, what are my courses at the Institute, what they thought significant achievement was. And they all went away and came back. And over the next two years, I started to see there were some really important elements here. I'd been in, looking at summative assessment before that with the testing of SATs. But it, it started to get sort of really interesting into what progress really was like and what sorts of thing helped, things helped it and so on. Anyway, I, I published four books on significant achievements, long gone out of print, I should think. Um, and then in 1998, <clears throat> Black and Williams, um, Black and William were, so Paul Black and Dylan William were, um, sorry, am I taking too long over this? No, no, this is brilliant. <laughs> Loving this. this <laughs> Keep just, going. It's not just my career. It's the history of, in many ways, of assessment in the UK. Um, so around 1998, uh, there was nothing but summative assessment going on in uh, England. So I don't know about the rest of the UK, but um, it was basically SATs and then TA, you know, teacher assessment levels. And it, it, the whole world was about testing. And a group of rebellious academics got themselves together and uh, called themselves the Assessment Reform Group. Um, and what they wanted was for policymakers to hear about formative assessment. Um, so they commissioned Paul Black and Dylan William, he, he might have even talked about this when he was being interviewed by you, to uh, do a review of all the literature uh, and hand that to policymakers, you know, to the DfE and so on. So they did a 60-page brilliant review. Um, and as a result of that, the I remember quite clearly going to a conference where the DfE said, we, we can't afford to ignore these findings. This is what makes children progress. You know, um, yes, they need testing as well, but this we need to you know, really take notice of this. So they wrote a little digest, Black and William, of their review and called it Inside the Black Box, which is on most people's staff room shelves gathering dust, but it's worth keep looking at it, to be honest, because it's interesting historically to see how far we've come on from 1998 to now with all of the elements that they, you know, talked about. Now, it was all research-based, of course, um, you know, there was no real classroom practice. It was all the, the studies and the evidence in, in that. And 
when I saw this report, um, I thought, this is what I've been doing with my teachers, all this stuff. It's all the same thing. It's called formative assessment. I was incredibly excited. Um, and from that moment, um, I, you know, I took all of that research and carried on saying, to, and this is the secret, basically, of research into practice, saying to teachers, you know, what, what does it look like in the classroom? You know, there's, yeah. I mean, after 10 years of being in the Institute and seeing all these lecturers, all these academics writing all these complex articles that were brilliant but never got into the hands of teachers. And I was frustrated by it. Um, so uh, my kind of, you know, mission at that point then was I've got to get all of this amazing research into the hands of teachers. So I started asking them to go away, try things out. And it was really basic stuff like sharing learning intentions. So what does that look like? What do you do? Um, and because uh, that was so that was 1998, because I continue to ask that question, but of course I give teachers now uh, the, um, you know, the, the current sort of thinking and practice from the classroom. They keep evolving and becoming more sophisticated and it becomes um, more and more understood, if you like. But um, I then um, was able, again, to have enough material to write Unlocking Formative Assessment in 2001. And by then I was, uh, of course, the minute you publish a book, um, people will start to, um, you know, want to hear you speak about it. Um, and it was a book that I deliberately wanted not to be too academic, but but to have the underpinning research so that it wasn't just what I'd seen a lot of at the time, which was tips for teachers kind of books, you know, no underpinning research. Um, it seemed to be either at that point, there were either tips for teachers books or there were sort of, you know, heavily academic books and nothing in the middle. Um, and so... I got news from Hodder and Stoughton that, that um, schools all over the country were buying multiple copies of Unlocking Formative Assessment so that every single member of staff could, could have one. And they'd never had that happen before. And it was basically because, you know, I was writing it in a very accessible way and, you know, talking to teachers the way I had been talking on my courses. So, and I, looking back, um, I think the a lot of those academics at the Institute sort of looked down their nose at me at the time. Um, and yet now, 20 years later, I see so many more academics doing exactly what I did then, which was, you know, look, what's the point of us doing this if we don't try and get it into the hands of teachers? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. You, you've been working on formative assessment, like you said, for, for decades now then, haven't you? You know, yeah. you've really been... <laughs> but Dylan Williams said the same thing about um yeah, about yeah. talking about it for so long yeah but, and I think one of the key reasons why it's still important that we talk about it is because there's a lot of mutations right. misunderstanding yeah. yeah misapplication mm -hmm. so for anyone listening because um we we have teachers all over and, and I actually taught in the Middle East and you're very influential with schools I know you've you've worked all over the world with, mm -hmm. with formative assessment but for any teachers perhaps who who aren't familiar with this you know 
with the concept of what formative <laughs> assessment. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you touched upon how the SATs are summative. So how would you explain, you know, base of simple what terms? Yeah, yeah. What, what it is. Um, okay. Well, it, it consists of um, sort of four or five elements, basically. Um, and all the academics have agreed for a while that it should never have been called formative assessment because it tends to look like, if you don't know any better, that's something you do to children or that you, you know, you're doing tests, but taking the information formatively, which you should be doing from a summative test anyway. So it consists of a number of strategies. Um, and I suppose the word assessment comes to life in that it, it's at the heart of it is ultimately getting the child to be um, uh, able to assess themselves, if you like, and, and identify their own strengths and weaknesses, know where they've been and where they're going and how to ask for help and, and so on. So those um, elements are, and this is the, the way I describe it on all of my talks and in my books and everything else, is the absolute foundation is um, having high self children having high self-efficacy. And, and creating a learning culture. Now, high self-efficacy is how you feel about your belief in your ability to achieve. And many of the systems we have in our schools for years seem to have been deliberately put in place to lower children's self-efficacy. So any comparative measures, you know, they're already comparing themselves, but we rub their noses in it by having ridiculous comparative rewards and ability grouping and all that kind of thing. Um, and uh, making children perhaps feel that error is something, instead of it being exciting, is something to be slightly worried about and, and that struggle is means you, you're thick or whatever. So I spend a lot of time with teachers on just that because if you don't get that bit right, if you don't get high self-efficacy, then, you know, doesn't matter whether you have taught partners or learning intention success criteria, their, their self-efficacy is so low they won't even... Uh, listen to to what you're talking about or what's going on yeah. or anything else and there's studies that show that even positive feedback is is not received positively um, by a child with low self-efficacy so that's at the heart of everything and you know one of my biggest problems over the years that drives me insane is trying to get people to get rid of reward systems in schools they're so damaging um, and I, I can feel my, you know, my tone going to a rant if I'm not careful. Go, yeah, it's all right. You can rant here. <laughs> Inside the black box, I always read out to people, 1998, as long as the system continues to have comparative measures like gold stuff and stickers and all that sort of thing, you'll continue to have children compared to each other. And, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why. Um, I, I, you know, I could spend the whole time just talking about that. But. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. And and Je Jenny, our listener, said she could listen to Shirley all day, but she's also said this is interesting. And something um, that I've found very uncomfortable is um, I've worked in schools where they reward students on their attendance. And mm. the, the student, especially with the pandemic and things like that, but students who are carers or they've been sick and uh, you know there's genuine reasons as a bereavement I mean this is moving away from the the gold star teaching and learning but it still shows how rewarding students like that comparatively for something yeah. 
It's not good, is it? But yeah, it's still, yeah, it's very common, isn't it? It, it's, it really is. Um, and it's, I always say to people, we've got complacent in this country because uh, education we take for granted. If you, if you could go back, uh, you know, 150 years or whatever, when I don't know how long ago it was when only boys were educated or where children left school at 12, my grandparents left school at 12, you know, um, uh, far Eastern countries, uh, education is seen as the reward. Learning is seen. Yeah. As John Hattie spends all his life saying the only thing that matters is learning and what's your impact. Um, and yet somehow we think uh, now that uh, we have to reward children for learning something or being kind or whatever, you know, and actually it, it the problem is there's an invisibility effect. We don't see the damage it's doing. Um but let me let me get back to the different elements. So the the um, so the heart of it is high self-efficacy. Then the different elements are the importance of children knowing learning intentions and co-constructing success criteria, and that kind of links with um, Sadler's closing the gap that he brought to us all. You know, which is that you, children need to possess a concept of the goal before they can start anything. So it's not just knowing the learning intention, it's knowing how it breaks down in, into processes, what you need to do to achieve it. Um, and once children have co-constructed them, then they, they, you know, they kind of internalise them. Then we need fantastic discussion going on in the classroom. And that's how the, the talk partner, learning partners things evolved. And that was all linked as well with the late 90s, loads of research about questioning. And uh, what Dylan, I heard your introduction, um, Dylan's business about thinking time, there's not enough time. That was um, uh, Rowe's work that became known as wait time. Um, because they found that teachers were leaving approximately one second for children to wow. answer a question. And, and he's right. You know, we tend to say, OK, 30 seconds to talk to your talk partner. Um, and I think, you know, there needs to be a little bit of a gap before they start talking. But having said that, when I watch primary children doing this, I think they do their thinking through their talk very often. Um, you know, and, and sometimes there's Dylan comes from a more secondary um, background yeah. to me and bias in his way and me with primary. Uh, and some things are definitely, and this is why it's all been so interesting, different depending on what subject you're talking about and different depending on what age group you're talking about. So we've got so far the self-efficacy, high self-efficacy, uh, learning talk partners, learning intention, success criteria. Um, and then you've got this massive feedback uh, section. Yeah. It's absolutely huge. Um, and all the emphasis these days is on in-lesson feedback, on-the-move, pen-in-hand feedback, rather than uh, what when I started teaching, it was there was no such word as feedback. It was um, that was something that happened on you know on um, a microphone. It was um, marking, and that was it. Marking that's all you did, and that was your accountability. How well you mark. Or kept the children quiet. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. I just wanted to actually pick up because um, I had to write a chapter on learning intentions and success criteria. So I drew heavily on your work, which was really helpful. So thank you so much. But I found that chapter really difficult to write. But you wrote a whole book on it. <laughs> so. It's the most technical part of formative assessment. And in many ways, the most important part, once you've got through the self-efficacy business, 
because I always say to people, imagine when you were at university and you had to write your first 5,000-word assignment, if not only had you been given the criteria they use for, you know, what you need to include, what you get the most marks for or whatever, but also if you'd been able to look at a couple of really excellent ones from last year and compare them in a seminar group to one that was fairly mediocre and have a big discussion about what has this one got that this one hasn't, you know, you'd have all been getting A stars, you know, because that's that. those are the vital ingredients that we've tended not to share with, with students for, for decades. But yes, it, it is difficult. It's technical and it, change, it depends on the type, whether it's an open learning intention or closed or whether it's children's writing, which can't be, you can't guarantee total success. You can only give toolkits or whether it's maths or whatever. Yeah. And, and actually, when I um, have asked teachers about learning intentions or also know your lesson objectives, outcomes and so on, there's always this, there's, there's almost now quite a bad attitude because of things that were enforced, like copying them down and mm-hmm. lesson observations where you had to, you know, have this learning intention achieved by the end of a lesson. And we're moving a, away from this, but it's almost like a bit of a a hangover sense is that there's still these these things happening in schools I still I know schools where they they do have to write down and copy every learning intention and I mean watch I'm so clear yeah. that I mean it, it I'm, I, I, I can't believe how long ago it was that the levels were removed I think it's seven years ago uh, I don't know if you remember when the levels were removed in, yeah. in um, but basically at that up until then, um, you know that the main focus, for instance, when inspectors came around the schools, was was not their learning intentions and success criteria and everything else and what they wrote in the books. It was more what level are they on, um, and what evidence do you have? Everybody was asked for evidence all the time. Um, and after the levels were removed in England, Ofsted made the fatal mistake of saying from now on, when we do inspections, we're just going to be looking at the children's books. And that was the moment when you can imagine many head teachers said, OK, well, we need to make sure all the learning intentions are in every piece of work, no matter what the age of the children and the success criteria as well. And then we need loads of coloured highlighting and you need to be marking, you know, deep improvement comments so that the, the books look good. You know, it, this is what happens with a culture of fear. Um, and they actually sent out Mythbusters. They actually called the Mythbusters straight after that. But, it, you know, the, it was too late. The, the horse had bolted or whatever the... Yeah. Um, and it's, it took years. I'm still saying to people, don't get them to write the learning intention in their books. Have it on the whiteboard, but underneath that, put a very abbreviated version of that as the title that they put in their books. You know, so one long learning intention becomes one or two words. Um, and the success criteria need to be in the room while they're working to help them. They don't need to be in the book. Um, you know, so it's been a gradually trying to get the message across. And I think it's brilliant that you did write a book about it because I, I'm not really aware of many books that specifically hone in on that. Yet it's really important mm-hmm. for, for planning 
and the delivery and something that I took from you this might have been what I thought I took from Dylan and he said was you <laughs> was um, about taking the the context out um, so for example um, if it was about how to you know write a recipe well you don't want to include that it's about how to write you know a recipe about lasagna it's not about lasagna because you want to be able to apply that recipe or that yeah and that's really interesting just things like that that I I, sometimes we do these things that they seem obvious that well when when I read your explanation why we shouldn't do it and I say oh I was doing that and I never saw it that way so uh, it it's not as easy to get right (laughs) as it seems learning intentions and success criteria I don't think I think it's something that does require careful time and effort and reflection but it's not really given that time in, in with CPD and and with books and so on so I think that it is so great that you hone in on focus on it and give so much great advice oh sorry about that yeah so and in terms of success criteria do you have any specific advice for teachers um in terms of what they should or shouldn't do oh hello is it me? Oh, sorry. Shirley is on mute. There we go. Hello, Shirley. Are you there? I can't hear Shirley at the moment. But you can, don't worry, you can call back in, Shirley. Just press that um, that phone button. But anyway, that's really interesting. Hopefully we'll get Shirley back on the line. We've tweeted out... Um, what Shirley said about reward systems and we've got a few comments so Zoe answer we've put Shirley Clark is talking to Kate Jones right now getting rid of reward systems what do you think Zoe answer said I'm yet to see one that really works um so obviously focusing on building intrinsic motivation would be a better use of time I feel so hello Shirley can you hear me oh I'm not sure what's happening Tom, can you hear um, Shirley or is it just me? Okay, this is the thing. (laughs) When we have live radio, we've got a little technical issue. Um, I'm not sure what's happening. Well, I know Shirley is there. We'll just try and... um, connect her. But do, if you've been listening so far please do share your comments in the Podbean chat or on Twitter. We've already covered so much. We're going to go to ads now and we'll come back and hopefully Shirley Clack will be back with us. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Upland. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. 
teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn. U-P-L-E-A-R-N dot co dot UK. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In Scotland, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon is facing demands to drop her £300,000 scheme to cut the bottom off doors, aimed at improving ventilation to combat COVID-19. Asbestos experts have warned that the plan could expose pupils and teachers to deadly dust. A 2019 report revealed that about 1,600 Scottish schools still have asbestos fixtures and fittings, including fire doors. Asbestos was banned in 1999. Director of Action on Asbestos, Phyllis Craig, said, Asbestos can be found within doors and in different areas in schools, and I would sincerely hope that this is taken into consideration before any work is carried out. Schools are required to have had a survey to identify the presence of any asbestos, hold a register of the whereabouts of any asbestos and have a plan to manage asbestos. My question is, does the Scottish Government know if schools meet these requirements before any work is carried out? If not, I'd be concerned asbestos may be disturbed during the process of cutting the doors. Asbestos exposure can have health consequences decades after exposure and this needs to be recognised and treated with the seriousness that it merits. After safety concerns were raised, Education Secretary Shirley-Anne Somerville appeared to back away from plans, but they have not officially been dropped. A Scottish Government spokesman appeared to pass responsibility on to the local authorities, saying, There is no such plan. It is for local authorities to decide 
what measures they take to improve ventilation in schools. Hello, so Shirley. I'm so sorry, somebody <laughs> called me. I didn't realise it would completely shut me out. You know? Oh, no, don't we? Um, I don't know if you heard me saying when I had John Hattie, his phone battery died and he, he went away, charged it and came back. So we are very used to technical difficulties, but we're back. You're back. <laughs> right. I forgot what I was talking. We were talking about learning intentions and success criteria, weren't we? Yes. So I was just saying about how important it is that you have written what you have, because I don't think it's as easy to get right as teachers always think. Um, So I was asking you about success criteria and any advice in terms of do's or don'ts for teachers? Okay. well, the decontextualizing that you were talking about before, um, you know, can I just go back to that for a second? Oh, yes. That was yes. Sorry. Yeah. I think one of the important things about um, what I've been doing with teachers is that it's been a journey where these things have all been discovered bit by bit, you know. So if you read Unlocking Formative Assessment 2001, it doesn't bear any resemblance to the one I wrote um, in 2014, Outstanding Formative Assessment, for instance, because of we learned so much. And I remember... Uh, a teacher at the institute on one of my courses coming back, you know, they would come, I would see them for six, coming back and saying, you know, the success criteria worked really well for this poster for, um, to create an effective poster to St. Lucia. And it was pretty good and we broke it all down, what they'd need to include in the poster. And then a few months, few weeks later or whatever, we were creating posters for the Christmas fair and we had to start again. And it was like this light bulb that we all had in the room that actually what we needed was generic features of any poster, um, you know, before you start, uh, you know, um, before you do anything. And then, I mean, some teachers call that sort of every time we do this and this time only is the context. Um, And, uh, you know, that was a breakthrough and there have been many of those breakthroughs. Now, success criteria, the do's and don'ts that you were talking about, um, don't have too many. Always co-construct them because it makes it effortless. Make sure you know before you actually do the lesson that you really know what you want the children to learn. Don't look at learning intentions in books. Just think, what do I want them to learn for this lesson? Now, with what I'm going to ask them to do, what are the key things? What are the things they're going to need to be able to, to need to do or include? What must and it's either rules or tools. Usually, it's either you know things they must do if it's a closed learning intention or things that will help them. If it's writing, for instance, then it's a kind of toolkit of possibilities. It's about planning, really, and being clear. These these are the things that they're going to need to remember to do in order to achieve the learning intention, or these are the things that they might include if it's writing, because, you know, you can't say you must do this and then you'll have a perfect piece of writing. And once you've decided yourself, well, these are the things that they're going to need. I, I always sort of think basically, how would you teach it if you haven't already thought those things through anyway? 
And then how are you going to get those, get the children to know those things? Well, you could just write them all down and say, this is what you need to remember to do, but they won't remember them and they won't understand them. They won't have that concept. So that's where co-constructing came in. And again, that was teachers experimenting and saying, you know what really worked well when I showed them a really good one and a really bad one and asked them what this one had that this one didn't. And basically out of that came a list of the criteria that they should include. And what's more, they'd seen what a good one looked like. And then all sorts of other strategies came up. So I've now got about eight fantastic co-construction strategies, some of which are incredibly simple. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that, those, those are the key things. Really. Um, yeah, no, that's really helpful. And, um, I mean, all of the things that you do write about with formative assessment, and they all link together so well, because obviously then that will link with the feedback. And as you said, that's a huge, huge area. We could almost have just a separate conversation about that. Um, but you collaborated with Hattie on your visible feedback book. And he said to us on the interview, um, he said you were brilliant. And he said you also gave him critique <laughs> of his work that he took on board, constructive criticism. And you made him, th- <laughs> I don't know what that was. He didn't go into details. Um, I a lot. <laughs> So uh, that's it, though, isn't it? Really, about you said about how we moved away from the marking and the in life and and so on. But I mean, it, it it's there's challenges. There's still a lot of challenges with the feedback, okay. isn't there? You know, especially when you've got a class, a large class, and yep. trying to do so much, and there's workload, and oh my goodness. So I mean, I would, I have got your um, visible feedback book, and I would recommend it. And it's too difficult to sort of summarize in the short time we've got but again any advice for teachers in terms of um so we've shared the learning intentions co-constructed the success criteria and then obviously we'll be getting the evidence of learning from that so in terms of the feedback well should we be encouraging the students to refer back to the success criteria and that that should should that be our first part of feedback encouraging them to to find and improve like a formative type of feedback that they're just responding to and acting on? I mean, yes, it depends, again, how able the children are to be able to do that um, because of their age. Um, yeah. But uh, if it's um, if the, the success criteria are linked to closed learning intentions, like all the maths procedures, for instance, or uh, grammar and, and all those sorts of things that are closed, where that you basically, you know, you've got to do these five things and then, then you've achieved it, then it's, it's really useful for children to be referring to the success criteria. And the question then is how well have you done against the success criteria? Or have you achieved them? Have you got it right? Um, now, for children's writing, which is quite different all the way along, any prose writing that children do, um, the key thing is not have you, how well have you, you know, have you got the success criteria because it, it becomes meaningless to say, well, yeah, I've got three adjectives and two similes, you know, is it a good piece of writing? Um, so the, the question then is what do you, what have you done the best? What are you most pleased with? And always, you know, what what could um, what could be even better, and that's that's very much the focus of um, the formative focus, really, of, of children's writing is, 
It's not, have you got the success criteria? It's what have you done the best? Um, and and it, it, this is so complicated because this all links with having, for instance, mid-lesson learning stops, uh, exposing children as a whole class to um, examples of good ones, as I've talked about already, um, and analysing them as a class and saying, you know, what do you like in this? Not, oh, look, here's an alliteration, but how does it make you feel? Why do you like it? You know, what is it about it? What, how does it, what does it make you think of? And, and so on. So that they're getting that nose for quality that Guy Claxton talks about. And the children read less and less now. Um, and so we need to be um, exposing them more and more to examples of what good writing looks like, but not just reading it to them, analysing it. So, you know, uh, feedback um, is success criteria for closed. And it's more about, you know, how well have you done it for open? That's, that's the bottom line, really. I, I really like how you give examples in your books, like very specific examples for teachers of uh, um, and actually um, Jenny, who's listening live, has said um, that she spends a lot of time trying to get the wording right. And Jenny asked, and I think I know what you're going to answer to this, but I think it's worth asking. Um, in primary, do you differentiate learning intentions and success criteria or is it the same for everyone? What I always say is if you try to differentiate learning intentions and success criteria, you will be up till midnight trying yeah. to for a start. Secondly, it's inappropriate because your, your perception of what children can achieve is almost definitely going to be putting barriers um, in the way of, you know, what, what is possible for all children. Um, you know, children live up to the expectations placed upon them and what's happened for a long time is, for instance, um, when I was teaching, you would have the same children right up to year six, not um, being given a chance to learn uh, column multiplication, for instance, because they won't understand it. So instead, and they don't know their tables yet. So instead, they're doing arrays, um, you know, over and over again. And then they go to secondary school and they, they haven't got a fighting chance. Whereas if all children have the same learning intention and the same success criteria, then nobody is marginalised from the learning experience. And the differentiation should be their, ac their access to the success criteria by modification of the task. So the examples I usually give are, you know, don't marginalise children who don't yet know their number bonds from learning, you know, different ways of calculating. Give them their number bonds, you know, give them their tables so they can access ways of multiplying. Um, and children who, for instance, can only write a couple of sentences, don't marginalise them from report writing. Give them a report that's um, almost completed within which they work. So they're still accessing the learning attention and its success criteria. Yeah, I I thought you would say that because I totally agree with you, and 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 that's a really good question because again, a few years ago, differentiated learning intentions and outcomes were the rage with you know some most all should must could, and again these things, as we've said, it's quite common with formative assessment, and then 
that's it. So, but that does make absolute sense with what you're saying from the child perspective and also the workload point of view for a teacher as well and and, and how ridiculous um, that would be. Now, there, there's something else that I, um, I did want to ask you about. So you mentioned about um, the learning culture that we create in the classroom. And I know that you've referenced the work of, of Carol Dweck yeah. with, with growth mindset. And I think that's another thing that got misunderstood yeah. in yeah. schools. But you're still an advocate for the growth mindset and the work of Carol Dweck. I really am because yeah. and she's a, a, an incredible woman. She's worked for 40 years on motivation uh, before her book Mindset in 2006, all her work, all her books were incredibly rigorous. Well, it's always rigorous work she does, but they were real academic tones, you know. Um, and it was, uh, she's got brain labs and all sorts of amazing things going on. It was in 2006 when she started to see these two ways of thinking that she came up with the entity mindset and the incremental mindset. And it was only when she changed the words to fixed and growth that people started to say, oh, this sounds interesting. And because it's so incredibly famous, uh, a bit like what's happened with formative assessment, people cherry pick these things or they misunderstand them. Um, they get the wrong end of the stick. They don't uh, know the under underlying you know, um, research. Um, and in the last three years or so she's been writing articles desperately saying this is what it is and this is what it isn't and that the key messages are um there's no such thing as saying i have a growth mindset or i have a fixed mindset it's not because we all have both depending on the circumstances we're in yeah the verb is thinking with are you thinking with a growth mindset um when the circumstances are difficult and that's all about believing that if with practice and effort and time and input, that's our other point, it's not just about effort. For some reason, everything's been reduced to effort. It's practice, effort, time and input are all the things that you need to be able to succeed, as well as motivation. And um, success is what starts motivation. You don't start with motivation and then achieve success. You start with success. And children who, you know, very often are misbehaving are children, especially in secondary schools, who are not, who don't often achieve success in their learning. And so they find other ways to raise their self-esteem. Um, we need to be making sure that children experience success as a way of, you know, making them uh, able, well, as a way of motivating them. And the third thing that um, Carol is big message that I've used to my advantage is that there's no point saying you can't do it yet and, and using positive language about mistakes and everything else if the systems in the school and the structure of everything contradict that whole message of growth mindset thinking and those systems are um, over praising children uh, not, not normalizing error, giving comparative rewards and ability grouping. Now, if you've got those systems going on, then it doesn't matter what you say um, to try to encourage children to think with growth mindsets, you're, you're on to a losing battle. Yeah, I 
just agree and nodding along with everything and um on twitter jenna said she's really enjoying listening to the show karen who is uh, also loving your comments and something i just want to pick up on she said i'm literally staring at my mindset book now and i know you've done a lot of work in wales with schools in wales because uh, that's where i'm from shirley and um i think the problem was is that i don't remember any of my colleagues reading the mindset book but yet we all had these posters and slides and assemblies and it was all really well intentioned we just missed the mark and didn't invest the time properly to understand it and like Mary Myatt says you know live it don't laminate it and I think that's so true with the with the growth mindset but your work yeah I know that you're a big advocate for it's well it's a huge part of the learning culture isn't it yeah and I know this sounds like a plug, but um, one of the things that I've I've been doing since the year 2000 as well is um, collecting video of excellent teachers doing this stuff in the classroom because that's part of my, you know, sort of a, a raison d'etre, basically, to bring the research into the classroom. Look, this is what it looks like. So I do have a, a, on my uh, website a platform of 100 and I think it's 125 video clips across the age group up rage ranges up to 16 year olds um doing all this stuff so you know we need as many ways as possible of getting the the key messages um to everybody <laughs> oh well, that's amazing i've already shared out a link to your website so i'm definitely going to explore it more than um and the videos yeah i find that so helpful and seeing these things in action and um just before you joined I was actually talking about um CPD and how it's changed and uh, how how have you found it with everything because obviously that's a huge part of your job now isn't it speaking at events working with teachers and then the pandemic came and it all went online um do you have a a preference do you prefer now to stay online or do you want to get back out there or well, for, you know, I agree with what you said at the beginning. Yeah, it's it's very convenient to uh, just sort of sit in your living room or office or whatever and do it. But it's hard work when you can't, you don't have that interaction with people. Um, and I also have empathy for you. What you're saying about people on their phones. Uh, last week. I did um, a whole day with PGCE students who are all very young, lovely, eager um, people. And every single person in the room had a laptop open in front of them. And I started off by saying, I, just like you, because of the cognitive load, I always give my audience copies of the slides with notes, uh, lines beside them, you know, four per page, so they can take notes that go with each slide. Um, but, you know, I didn't want to sound too, like you said, too much like a diva. So, <laughs> so I, I said, you know, um, if, you most, if you want to write notes, you might find that really helpful because they're going to link with the slides. Um, um, if, however, you're going to write it in your, you're going to just type it straight into your laptop, then you won't, it won't link necessarily with the key information I've got on the slides. But half the room carried on with the, their laptops. And I don't know what they're looking at. You know, maybe when it gets boring, they start looking at their emails or whatever. I don't know. But it's disarming from a presenter's point of view. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think it's interesting to think about it 
from that perspective as well and how it can just I don't know almost it's just strange you just have to sort of keep going and it's but as I said these big events that happen people yeah on their phones and on their laptops and yeah I think the future though is um that we'll have to um send people the slides with the notes send them digitally so that they can type them in because somebody said to me afterwards these days a lot of um young people are not used to writing by hand but they can type really fast of course because that's what they're doing all the time so you know maybe that will be the way forward i mean as i said you still can't see what they're really doing (laughs) but uh, you know then hopefully you know the quality of your presentation is is good enough that they can follow the slides on their laptops you know I think in fact I need to really think about that myself yeah it's all changed in the last few years everything has changed and it's interesting and so the work that you're doing obviously you just said with trainee teachers with schools with formative assessment I mean your Amazon page has so many books. <laughs> I lost count as I was scrolling across. But do you watch your plans? Is it carry on sharing with formative assessment, more books, uh, any more collaborations with people like John Hattie? <laughs> what to, what's in the? I'm asked these days, um, you know, to write articles a lot. Well, I've been for a long time, and if you know, I wrote three books during lockdown, so I'm kind of a little bit booked out at the moment. If you see what I mean. Um, um, so I'm writing sort of little things, but I'm still very much into having my action research or learning teams that I call them that I run every year. I've had several in North Wales. Um, so my learning teams are 30 teachers drawn from 15 schools across the phases. Um, and I work with those teachers over uh, the course of a whole year. And from those teams have come really all um all my knowledge to be honest about the how you know I've been able to link the research with the practice that's come from those teachers and that's how I've found the video examples so I'm still running the five teams running now uh, we had a big gap with the pandemic back on those teams back in writing and I'm doing more and more keynotes all over the place now yeah abroad and so on and I'm, I'm doing a keynote in Australia, which has got to start at midnight and go on till... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it might even be one o'clock till half past two, I don't know. Oh, dear. But that, they'll be, you know, they're very lucky. I, I live in North Wales and I went... Um... I've been working with the school in Anglesey and they told me about the Shirley Clark project and I was like, oh, she's coming on my radio show. <laughs> so um, I really love that you have a connection um, with North Wales. And yeah, that's really exciting. It's just about continuing to spread the word about formative assessment. And if people do want to find out more, I mean, I do recommend your books. I'll, I'll tweet a photo. I've got one of your recent ones that the little book about formative assessment, yes. love that. Um, and I'll sh- we'll share it on our Instagram and our Facebook. But your mm-hmm. website, shirleyclark-education.org, that seems to be where you've got a lot on there. Is that the place to go? Yeah, that is the place to go. That's got all the publications. And thank you for mentioning the little guide to formative assessment because that's only nine ninety nine. So, and I. Yeah so much in it I just wish it was full size to be honest because it's tiny writing 
But um, and I used to like my Hodder books that were all full color and you know, um, but I think that's a really good sort of Bible for for teachers to have and it's cheap so. Yeah, I've got it, and it's it's one of those books um, that I've referred to, and I could just imagine teachers having it mm-hmm. in their desk, going yeah. back to it time and time again, um, or you know, with it being a little book, a handbook in their drawer, mm-hmm. and it's just yeah, it is something that you know, formative assessment covers so much. It really is at the heart of effective teaching and learning and you know I'm really pleased to hear that you that you're still very busy and that you've still got lots more that you will be doing <laughs> with with I'm not stopping yet and and I still also on my website uh, I write up all the feedback from all the teams on day twos and day three where um you know it's very rich feedback with loads of anecdotes and it's all uh year group focused and issue focused so you know, if somebody wants more advice about success criteria with, for instance, you know, year two or or whatever, what's possible in nursery, there's so much stuff on there that, that's, uh, you know, and it's all free. So. Oh, wow. I'm just looking at it now, actually. Yeah, you've got like age nine and ele- to 11, yeah. um, learning intention success criteria, age four to six, talk partners. Wow. Oh, I'll have to have a look through all of this um, and feedback, yeah. cognitive load all of these things it's like a huge umbrella formative assessment isn't it and so many things you've got about questioning oh my goodness this is a fantastic website it's like a treasure trove (laughs) well it's really formative assessment is good teaching and learning I think yeah but it's it's all it's um but it's um not subject-based you know so it's the processes for all learning for all subjects for all ages and that's what makes it so powerful it's the single dylan probably told you it's the single most significant thing to, to raise um standards of achievement um you know because it brings all of the best practice together you should collaborate with dylan william because i know obviously he he's reference and is a fan of your work and i assume you're a fan of dylan william as well that would be a, a great collaboration yeah, I, we've never talked about it, and yet obviously we're we're very linked, you know. Yeah, we, we have lots of conversations and email each other. And I always think of, you know, I'm the primary person and he's the secondary person. But yeah, we've influenced each other. Um, um, so yes, it's interesting that collaboration. Of course, he's in Florida now, so it- he is. He's left Wales. <laughs> for florida but um yeah even like yeah looking at it because um from a primary and secondary and where's that overlap and where's the nuance and, and yeah absolutely but even if you don't collaborate with dylan you, you you two are in the same sort of circles aren't you i see you speaking at like the world education summits and lots of high profile events and it, it's fantastic to learn from you both um and through your yeah your website um your books and all the work that you're doing with teachers you've really made a a, a very big impact and thank you as well for helping me as a teacher and a writer really yeah I really do appreciate that so lots of the comments are coming in from social media and popping just saying how they could listen to you all day there's demand for you Shirley to have your own show on Teachers Talk Radio (laughs) do it get a weekly slot and I'm sure there's so 
<laughs> there's an audience there for you but i really enjoyed and anyone who was um who missed part of the show this will be shared as a podcast link as well so i will send you that link surely and and we can share it out and anyone who's busy this evening can listen back to it and if they've got a question i'm just going to get you so your twitter handle is shirley clark underscore yes yes so i would encourage people to directly contact you if they've got any questions any feedback because you're always very generous with your time and and your thoughts oh yep absolutely please please do get in touch and put up any online i'm advertising online uh, twilight sessions for instance um uh, or any you know half days on inset days or online or obviously live and in person Oh, well, Oscar Ross Collar, the one I'm working with in Anglesey, they have just absolutely loved everything you've been doing. So that's a bit of extra feedback for you. You know, everyone who's worked with you just sings your praises. So, yes, I would encourage teachers and schools to to check out your website, indulge in it and, and yeah, contact you to work directly with you. How exciting is that? <laughs> that would be great. Oh, well, thank you very much. And and I will stay in touch. And uh, as I said, thank you for your time. We really enjoyed it. Thank you. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you. Oh, good. Bye, Shirley. Oh, what a great show that was. And, you know, wouldn't be Teachers Talk Radio without a little technical hitch. (laughs) It's absolutely fine. It's all good now. Well, Oh, we're coming towards the end of the show, but I know some people missed um, that here listening live, missed the first part of it. Don't worry, you can listen back. I will definitely be listening back as well. Um, just reflecting on my takeaways that I got from that, I thought that was really interesting what Shirley said about rewards and the negative impact of rewards and also about ability um, groups and so on um, and then not differentiating learning intentions and success criteria and the importance of the growth mindset and the fixed mindset and you know perhaps revisiting that because it did get misunderstood as lots of elements of formative assessment do and yeah something else as I, I always research and prepare for my interviews and I did spend quite a lot of time on Shirley Clark's website just like she mentioned there's so much on there there's there's all this sort of content and information but the videos I can just see now the resources it's definitely worth I have tweeted this link out but I will just say it once more Shirley Clark education.org really really high quality content and formative assessment just covers so much it is essentially teaching and learning in the classroom okay then well I am very excited I will be back again soon with my um radio partner so we're only partners like that not in a any other way and that is tom rogers we will be back with our show um where we usually sort of it's very topical so i can't say what we'll be talking about because we pretty much decide the night before or the morning of the show but that's on a saturday morning every other week at 9 a.m upcoming shows I have a pre-recorded interview with Professor Alan Badley so I've already interviewed him and that was amazing that episode focuses all about working memory 
it's like a real deep dive into working memory. Alan Badley, he is from Badley and Hitch, the model of working memory. He is an absolute legend. And I said that to him on the Zoom chat. I call him a legend. So if you want to listen to that, (laughs) don't miss it. Um, I'm also going to be joined, but live, by Jill Berry. Now, Jill Berry, fantastic author. She's done a lot with women ed. She's had a great TEDx talk. Um, She was a head teacher. She's a consultant with leadership. So Jill Berry will be joining me uh, next week live. The week after it'll be Alan Badley. And I've also got Sean Allison and Andy Tharby joining me in a few weeks as well. And they are the co-authors of one of my very favourite educational books, Making Every Lesson Count. So we're going to explore the six principles from their book. So I like to tweet out and share who my guests are in advance so that if anyone has any questions that I can send them the questions, I can ask them live during the show as well. If there's anyone that you would like me to talk to, then please just let me know. I'm always keen to to talk to different voices, different people. Um, Very exciting. We've got a show actually tonight with Emily Follow-On Show. And this is going to be a really good show. So Emily is amazing. She's one of my dear friends. She's on the late show, 8 till 9.30. And she is joined by Harry Fletcher Wood. Now, he's written some absolutely cracking books. And his latest book is Habits of Success, Getting Every Student Learning. So make sure you don't miss that. But you can find out we've got loads of shows every single day on Teachers Talk Radio. I am so proud to be part of this team. It just keeps growing and expanding. And if you would like to get involved in any way, whether that's being a host, being as part of a team, but part maybe a backstage role with technical support or social media, then just get in touch with us. The best way to do that would be through the Twitter account or via the way the the TT Radio website, which is ttradio.org. And on our website, you can find out more about us. You can listen back. You can read our blogs. You can contact us, see the schedule. And there's an application form where you just click and it says become a host. So everything you need about Teachers Talk Radio is there. So finally, all that's left to say for me is a very big thank you for listening and joining me tonight. And I hope you found it as interesting as I did. Another big thank you, Shirley Clark, another legend. She's absolutely amazing. Um, So I think we've all got a lot that we can take away from her. Well, okay then, that's that. I look forward to the next show. And if you're listening back, please do give me your thoughts and feedback. But take care and goodbye, everyone. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.